I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 24th, 2016. Coming up, Dr. Christopher Lowry, an Associate Professor of Integrative Physiology at the University of Colorado Boulder, talks about new research on the role that certain soil bacteria play in preventing stress-related behaviors, in mice at least. We think the microbiome plays a role in vulnerability to post-traumatic stress disorder. Let's start with a look at some of the recent news in science. Eukaryotes are one what one might call classical biological cells. In other words, cells that have an organized nucleus and other discrete components all kept within a membrane. These cells are the basic building blocks of life that make up plants, fungi, and animals. Mitochondria are essential parts of how such a cell functions. They are membrane-bound components or organelles within the cells and are often described as the cell's powerhouses. Mitochondria have long thought to have been essential components for life in eukaryotes, perhaps simply because no eukaryote has ever been found without them until now. Scientists recently reported that they have discovered a eukaryote that contains absolutely no trace of mitochondria. It seems that in the dark, distant past, this type of cell did once contain mitochondria, but found another way to create the iron-sulfur clusters necessary to power the cell. This research was recently published in the current journal Current Biology. A lot of research has emerged in recent years about the harmful effects of nitrogen-rich fertilizer. It's when excess fertilizer leaches off crop fields and into rivers, streams, and groundwater. The soluble form of nitrogen, nitrate, is a major cause of so-called dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico and Chesapeake Bay, for instance. High concentrations in drinking water can also cause a disease known as blue baby syndrome, which actually can be fatal. Another form of nitrogen from fertilizer has also been widely studied. It's nitrous oxide, or N2O, a potent greenhouse gas, an unintended product of fertilizing fields. And a new study sheds lights on a less known but also harmful face of this important crop nutrient. It's the aerosol form. Researchers have shown that emissions from farms outweighs all other human sources of fine particulate air pollution in much of the United States, Europe, Russia, and China. The study, according to researchers, is perhaps the first to look at the phenomenon of this form of fertilizer pollution worldwide and project future trends. The culprit is fumes from nitrogen-rich fertilizers and animal waste that mix in the air with industrial emissions to form solid particles, a major source of disease and death. But there's some good news. If industrial emissions decline in coming decades, as most projections say, fine particle pollution will go down, even if fertilizer use doubles as the global population mushrooms. The study, led by scientists at Columbia University, was published last week in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. On the science calendar this week, on the front range... Thursday evening at Fisk Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus, Professor Andrew Hamilton will present String Theory for Everybody, Finding the Fundamental Structure of Everything. The history of humanity can be charted by the continuing growth of our knowledge of how the world works. 
The last century has seen revolutionary ideas that reshape our view of the way the world works, from relativity to quantum mechanics. In this presentation, Dr. Hamilton will discuss the continuing scientific journey in search of a theory that describes everything in the universe. Well, if you want to learn everything, that will be this Thursday, May 26th at 7 p.m. at Fisk Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus. For more information, visit the website fisk.colorado.edu. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you're worried about some persistent dirt that still clings under your fingernails after planting or weeding last weekend, well, fear not. In fact, celebrate the soil. That is, the millions of microbes that grew in the soil. As part of our series called Our Microbes Ourselves, we discuss today a newly published study that expands on a growing field of research on the beneficial impacts of certain soil and gut microbes on our health. The new study, led by researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder, shows that a certain soil bacterium can be applied to prevent stress-related diseases and behavior. The study was conducted on mice, but the health implications for humans are far-reaching. Dr. Christopher Lowry, a co-author of the study, joins us in the studio. He's an associate professor of integrative physiology at CU Boulder. Dr. Lowry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So... Why don't we plunge right in and just give a quick sum of the study? So we conducted studies in mice, and the studies involved immunization with a, a bacterium that was isolated from soil in Africa. In um, Africa? In Africa, in Uganda, around Lake Kioga. I can tell you more about mm -hmm. that later. Uh, this particular species is called Mycobacterium vacci. Uh, vacci after cow because this particular species was originally isolated from cow dung. Uh, Who knew? Has an interesting history. V-A-C-C-A-E. Mycobacterium vacci. And this is a heat-killed version of the bacterium. And so what we're trying to do is use this as an antigen to affect the immune system. So antigen, how does that work? So the immune system recognizes particular molecules in bacteria. Uh, the immune system, the, the cells of the immune system have receptors on their surface that recognize very specific molecules in bacteria. And we're taking advantage of that uh, property of these bacteria. Uh, essentially, they're a polyantigenic substance, meaning they have many antigens on their surface and even inside uh, the bacteria, be because the immunization that we're using is a whole heat-killed preparation. It's the whole bacterium. It's just not alive. The bacteria are killed with heat, uh, but otherwise they're intact. So I'm so curious, before asking more That's about right. the methodology, <laughs> how did this come to be known in Uganda, Africa, and in cow dung? I mean, who went searching it's, for it, or did it, they inadvertently find it? It's a, actually, It wasn't inadvertent, actually. It's a very interesting story. My colleague Graham Rook is an immunologist at UCL, University of College London, and his colleague, John Stanford, they're both immunologists at UCL. They realized that 
the success of vaccination against tuberculosis varied dramatically depending on geography. So in other words, there were some geographical regions where the vaccines were very successful, other regions where they were not successful at all. And so they went to an area where the vaccines were very successful around Lake Kyoga in Uganda mm-hmm. with the intention of trying to understand what environmental factors in this particular geographical region are contributing to the success of the vaccines. And when they got there, they found that the shores of the lake, Lake Kyoga, were, were lined with this orange slime. And the orange slime turned out to be Mycobacterium vacci. So that's fascinating in and of itself. But then how do you tease that out from gazillion other environmental and perhaps genetic? Well, I think it was perhaps just luck. <laughs> but I think they also had some intuition because Mycobacterium vacci is in the same genus as Mycobacterium tuberculosis that causes TB. Aha. And so they share many antigens. It's polyantigenic. Many of those antigens are the same. So it boosts the efficacy of the vaccine against the targeted bacterium. So does that mean it actually has already boosted their immune system to make them less susceptible it, to TB? In, in people that have TB, it it stimulates the immune system to be more aggressive in attacking the tuberculosis bacterium. Fascinating. So it's this sort of cohabitation. Uh, it's a shared evolutionary history between the two species. And because they have this shared history, they share certain antigens that, or molecules that have similar amino acid sequences or other similar properties that allow the immune system to recognize them. And it... Uh, it boosts the parts of the immune system that are effective in in fighting off the tuberculosis bacterium. So it sounds like the research had already been done, or to some degree, on TB and this bacterium M. vaki. But how do you make the leap from that to using it to potentially help immunize against stress-related so, diseases? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question as well, and that, and that took time. And so the immunologist realized after some time that not only was it acting as an uh, adjuvant, essentially, for the tuberculosis vaccine. But it inherently had what we call immunoregulatory effects. And break that down? Yeah, I have to explain that. Immunoregulation is a balanced expression of different types of immune cells, meaning some immune cells are anti-inflammatory. Other immune cells are inflammatory. And what Mbaki does is provide a more balanced expression of these types of T-cells. So where you need inflammation, you get it. Where you don't, because I know we often hear universally inflammation, right. bad, 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 but right. not the case. Sometimes right? but you need depends. inflammation. Uh-huh. And so what immunoregulatory bacteria do is, is promote a balanced expression. So you still have inflammation when you need it against tuberculosis, for example, but it prevents inappropriate inflammation or unnecessary inflammation to things like allergens to your own human antigens uh, in, in other situations where inflammation is really not appropriate. So then, and again, we go from this Lake Uganda, the orange slime, <laughs> the mvaki, mm-hmm. to using it very specifically to see how it can be used to help boost the immune system and prevent 
um, is it inflammatory diseases? Is it strictly inflammatory or other stress-related well, there illnesses? Well, there were two additional steps before we started studying Mycobacterium vacci. And, and keep in mind, we started studying Mycobacterium vacci 16 years ago. So this is a very long history. Uh, Gotta have patience in this field, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what the uh, initial studies focused on was asthma. And so scientists looked at the ability of immunization with Mbaki to protect against asthma in mouse models. And what they found was that immunization with Mbaki weeks before challenge with an allergen could prevent asthma responses. And so this reflects the immunoregulatory effects of the immunization. And we th the, this, this group of scientists showed that these effects were dependent on a very specific type of immune cell called regulatory T cells. Mm -hmm. And these regulatory T cells secrete anti-inflammatory cytokines or immune signaling molecules. And examples are interleukin-10 and TGF-beta. So these are the types of cytokines that inhibit inappropriate inflammation, including the inflammation that you would see in an asthma attack. And so this was published in Nature Medicine. And this was, was back really... Back in 2007 or something? Uh, 2002. Oh, okay. It was really a long time ago. But it really established the principle that this immunization approach could prevent inappropriate inflammation. And that really led uh, to our interest in using it in stress-related context because stress induces inflammation. And, and, and break that down a bit more even. Inflammation, right. not just generally, but what kind of inflammation? Uh, stress induces what some people call sterile inflammation. In other words, pro-inflammatory cytokines are, re are released in response to even psychological stress. So, for example, Tad Pace, who used to be at the University of Colorado Boulder, showed that people exposed to something called the Trier Social Stress Test. It's basically a public speaking task in front of scientists with white lab coats that are trained not to smile. <laughs> it's very stressful for people. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of the few stressors in humans that can activate our stress hormone axis, for example. But what they found is that this this purely cycle. I mean, there's no infection. No, you know, nobody's getting jabbed with a needle or anything. Um, this activates the immune system to release the pro-inflammatory cytokine interleukin six. What they also showed is that people with depression had a much greater activation of their inflammatory response and. Plasma concentrations. Interesting. Of so they were predisposed. They're predisposed to respond with an exaggerated inflammation. And what we're arguing is that this is an inappropriate inflammation. You you might need interleukin six in a psychologically stressful situation. You might need some inflammation, but you certainly don't need the levels that you would see in a depressed patient. These are exaggerated levels that we think are inappropriate. So when you say you might need some, meaning when you really need to get the heck away from the tiger. Exactly. That's when these types of inflammatory responses are useful. Because you can imagine throughout evolution, if you were in a situation where you're about to be injured by a predator or someone who's bigger than you <laughs> uh, and has uh, bad intentions, then you can anticipate injury, physical injury. 
under that condition, you can anticipate an infection. And that's a situation where inflammatory response would be useful because you're going to need inflammation to fight off any infection that might arise from injury. And psychological stressors like that can predict a future physical stressor, meaning an infection Interesting. Or so tissue I'm, injury. I want to ask you more about potential treatments sure. and actual drugs. But first, so these little mice, how did you actually inflict, if not torture, stress upon them? What, yeah, how did so you go this, about it? This, yeah, this is a good question. We, we model uh, psychosocial stress in mice using, uh, in this case, what's called the Chronic Subordinate Colony Housing Model. That's a big name. Yeah. Is there the, an acronym for that? CSC. We call it the CSC. It's a very well-established model. It results in typical stress responses that you would see uh, in humans and other animals. This includes the fact that the adrenal gland gets bigger. It becomes insensitive to stress hormones. Uh, there's inflammation in the colon, so immune cells traffic to the colon and cause inflammation. That's called colitis. Uh, we see an exaggeration of chemically induced colitis in the model of inflammatory bowel disease, which includes uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Mm. Uh, we also see increased vulnerability to colon cancer. Uh, in in this model, and we see anxiety, and that's really what we're interested in. That's in a whole slew of, of psychiatry. Them. So you basically made mice respond under these kind of conditions, right? So the model we put four small mice in a cage with uh, essentially a bully. The bully's bigger and bred to be more aggressive, and mice normally form dominant subordinate hierarchies, uh, similar to humans. Um, and if you're not at the top of the ladder, it's stressful. So a really good analogy is a study that was done at Whitehall in the United Kingdom. These are the government offices in London. And in British society, historically speaking, there are very clear hierarchies. And the people that are at the top uh, at Whitehall tend to be very healthy. <laughs> the people that are one level down have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease and depression. People that are two levels down have yet a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. And what they showed uh, looking at this Whitehall population, here we're looking at 3,000 people in this study. What they showed is that pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6, which I've mentioned before, and C-reactive protein, which is not actually a cytokine, but uh, it's a good biomarker of inflammation. Mm -hmm. People that had elevated levels of these molecules just at rest when they come into the clinic in the morning predicted depressive symptoms 11 years later. 11 so years. having this kind of chronic, low-level you know, niggling at your side, stress every day uh, that elevates these pro-inflammatory molecules, even a little bit, seems to increase risk for uh, depression. The similar study was done uh, in Bristol, where I spent 12 years in the UK. And uh, here they looked at children. This was the Avon Longitudinal Study. Children that had elevated pro-inflammatory cytokines at age nine had 
increased symptoms of depression and, and psychosis at age 18. And there were socioeconomic elements to that? Uh, almost certainly. Um, that wasn't tracked in this particular study, but it does show the pattern. Fascinating. We'll get more to that, but I'm going to take a little station break. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. We're here at 88.5 FM, 1390 AM. I'm Susan Moran, and I'm speaking with Dr. Christopher Lowry. He's an associate professor of integrative physiology at CU Boulder, and it's about a new study on the beneficial role that a certain soil microbe called M. vacae plays in preventing stress-related illnesses in mice. So it sounds like over quite some years more and more is known about this relationship between inflammation and stress. And a lot of studies have been done on mice. Speaks a little specifically to this particular study and how it advances both what you've done in the past on, related to asthma and others, both in terms of, sort of physical and mental disorders and the possible treatment for it. So our focus in this series of studies was really anxiety and we think this model is particularly relevant to post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. PTSD is a, a response where individual is exposed to some form of trauma, could be a car accident, uh, physical assault, respond with uh, exaggerated symptoms of, of fear and others, other symptoms that are debilitating over time. And there's a lot of individual variability in who develops PTSD. And we predicted that some of this variability is the level of pro-inflammatory cytokines that exist prior to the trauma. This is supported by a study in U.S. Marines, several thousand Marines, and they found that at boot camp, concentrations of this biomarker of inflammation, CRP, predicted who would go on and develop PTSD symptoms after combat. When was this done? This was done just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Another observation that we find very interesting, uh, published in 2015 in January, was a study where they looked at risk for autoimmune disease in PTSD subjects. Again, this is a very large study. And what they found was that PTSD subjects are at greater risk for essentially all autoimmune disorders. What this tells us is that people with PTSD have a propensity for an overactive immune system, and that results in autoimmune disease. And one possible cause of that would be inadequate immunoregulation. In other words, inadequate ability to control inappropriate inflammation directed at yourself. That they had well before being dispatched to war. Exactly. That's what we would predict. They, mm -hmm. they didn't test that in that particular study, but that's, that's how we would interpret that. Boy, so this, I would think, could have, if it's true, if it plays out in humans broadly, could have far-reaching implications. I mean, would they more selectively choose those who go into combat? Because this is not just about treatment of PTSD, but looking at the predisposition for it. That seems like a big stretch. I'm not I'm not sure the military's interested in this type of screening, but they may they may be interested in reduce, reducing these vulnerabilities. Uh PTSD has tremendous costs. Um not only in the military but also in in society in general. So the idea that we could prevent 
vulnerability or at least reduced vulnerability to PTSD is is very compelling. And are human drugs in the making? I know this is on mice. This is well before clinical trials. But talk about sort of what's next and what would be the sequence to that point. Sure. It's, I, I don't think it's that far off. Um, we just received funding from the VA to do a veterans study, Veterans <laughs> Affairs, um, to do a study together with Lisa Brenner at the VA in Denver with the Rocky Mountain MIREC. And this is a mental health center at, at the VA in Denver. And we've been funded to conduct a clinical study to look at use of an immunoregulatory bacterium in veterans with co-occurring TBI, traumatic brain injury, and PTSD, and to see if we can improve stress resilience in this population with this immunoregulatory bacterium. So that's starting in June. Oh, fascinating. Next and um, we just have a, a, another minute. So I want to know f- a takeaway message for all listeners, myself included. You know, we hear over and over, yogurt's great, basic probiotics are great. Um, there are a gazillion different species, if that's the right word, of probiotics, to say nothing of prebiotics. So what are we to take from this? Are we to literally roll in the dirt more about what dirt and what yogurt and for what? Healthy dirt. Uh <laughs> You know, there's a study that was recently published where they, they they formulated the new tree of life dominated by bacteria. And the lead author, Laura Hugg, she said, meadow soil is one of the most complex ecosystems on the planet. And here they're talking about the bacteria. They identified dozens of bacteria that we didn't know exist by piecing together pieces of DNA uh, from soil. And I, I would say that there's there's two really important phyla of bacteria, the firmicutes, this is where the lactobacilli come from, the probiotics that you're familiar with, but also actinobacteria. These are the soil bacteria like Mycobacterium bacchi. We consider Mycobacterium bacchi to be a prototype. It's an example. There are thousands of actinobacteria that can do this, we're sure. Um, it's not just your it's secret not sauce just, on this. Uh, it's not the secret. It's not the secret sauce of Mbaki. This is just a, a a a very narrow peek at the potential for soil bacteria for human health. Keep in mind, eighty percent of all antibiotics that are used clinically come from actinobacteria. That tells you something. Interesting. Well, we've got plenty more on this topic in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you so much, Dr. Christopher Lowry, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Christopher Lowry, an associate professor of integrative physiology at CU Boulder. He co-authored a new study on the connection between a certain soil bacteria and uh, mental health stress-related health. We'll post this interview along with previous interviews in our ongoing Our Microbes Ourselves series on howonearthradio.org backslash Our Microbes Ourselves. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional headline contributions by Alejandro Soto. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Za Vuela Midro from Bhutan. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.